in Matthew 28, verse, I should have started, I guess, at verse 18, but um, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, but then the commission to us is, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then the second text in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, and these are known as the two great commandments. A a, uh, Pharisee asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the law? There were 613 of them, by the way. So Jesus is boiling all 613 down to two. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. A grocery store owner in England decided that he had to ban customers from coming into his store. He said he was forced to take such drastic action because of people's bad manners His first move was to ban smoking, then crude language, then baby strollers, pets, and finally, he had to ban customers themselves. Uh, He admitted, I have lost business, I cannot say how much, but I am a man of principles, and I stand by my decision. Well, I think it's safe to say that that store owner had lost sight of his mission to sell groceries. Uh, The people that wanted to shop had to look through a little, uh, through the window and point and then go up to a little trap door and take the goods through the door. They wanted to get the goods. Kind of a ridiculous story, isn't it? And yet it has application in that often churches lose sight of their mission you know, programs start, and maybe at the genesis of the program, it's a good thing, but then they have a life of their own, and they tend to keep going and keep going and hand off to the next person who's running it and the next, and down line somewhere, some running the program forget the original purpose for why the program was begun in the first place, and slowly the church becomes cluttered with Many programs, some of them are good, and it begins to drift off course, and it's very easy at some point to um, be doing many good things, but we've forgotten the main thing, and our focus is on all these things, but what about the main purpose of the church? And so... It's really important to ask and answer and then keep coming back over and over again to the issue of what is the mission of the local church? 
What are we supposed to be doing? Well, in a nutshell, the church's mission is to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel to the lost and by making Christ-like disciples who in turn make Christ-like disciples. There are other ways, of course, to say it. Um, J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness-bearing. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert wrote a whole book on what is the mission of the church, which is a very good book. Um, And they argue that the mission of the church is the Great Commission, but then they elaborate and say the mission of the church is to go into all or go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity to the glory of the Father. Our church has put a vision statement on the church website. I hope you've gone on there and read that sort of thing. Uh, Ours is based around the two great commandments as well as the great commission. And it reads, at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, we aim to build a community of joyful believers in Jesus Christ who love God, there's the first commandment, uh, and his word, who love one another, the second great commandment, and then the great commission, who love those without Christ by bringing them the good news of salvation. We also have on the site a mission statement that's a little more concise. We want to exalt God, glorify him, in other words, by helping each person fervently love God and others and to help make disciples of all people groups. So there are three focus or foci, however you say it, foci of of our church. Uh, The vertical or the upward, that is, we want to glorify and love God. Then there is the inward, where we want to really practice loving relationships in the local body, one to another. And then there is the outward focus, and that is proclaim the good news, the gospel uh, all around the globe as well as locally. And as I mentioned in the main idea of the message today, the process isn't really complete until the disciples that we produce are in turn making more disciples so that the process is going on. Uh, let's look first then at the church's mission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And as I've often said, to glorify God means to exalt him or in just plain language, to make God look good as he truly is. Uh, Somehow, even though we are finite creatures, we are to reflect who God is to this world. The gospel or the good news uh, is at the heart of glorifying God because God's sending his own son in human flesh to take the penalty for our sin we deserve to die on the cross in our place so that he can now offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life as a free gift 
to all who believe in Jesus Christ, uh, that exalts God. It exalts his love, his grace, his holiness, that sin had to have uh, a penalty paid, his justice. Uh, It exalts God as nothing else really can. And so Jesus, of course, in coming to this earth, proclaimed the gospel. Mark chapter 1 begins in verses 14 and 15. Now after John, John the Baptist that is, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Our response should be, Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, And so, at the very end of his ministry, as we read in one case there this morning, but in all four Gospels plus the book of Acts, it reports that Jesus left the apostles right before he ascended with what we call the Great Commission, the charge to go and proclaim the good news about Jesus all around the globe. And the fact that Jesus repeated it and all four Gospels and Acts have it in slightly different forms I think shows that he wanted that to be uh, unforgettable, to be an emphasis with his followers at the end. And so in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, I'll read it again. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, Mark's version of it occurs in the disputed, uh, textually disputed, longer ending, and so it may not be an authentic part of Mark's gospel, but it's simply go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And then in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 48, Jesus says to the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. By the way, John Bunyan has a wonderful book called The Jerusalem Sinner Saved, where he bases the whole book on those Three words there, beginning from Jerusalem. And he shows how the gospel is for the the worst of sinners because it was in Jerusalem that they killed the Savior. And uh, it's a wonderful read if you haven't read that. And then in John chapter 20, verse 21, uh, Jesus says to the disciples again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The gospel also was the foundation of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, He was hoping to visit the church in Rome and he wrote in Romans chapter 1, Verses 15 and 16. 
So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He reminded the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Um, as we saw recently in our study of Thessalonians, Paul emphasized the centrality of the gospel when he founded the church there. First uh, Thessalonians 2.2, he says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And then in verse 8 of the same chapter, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And then the next verse, 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I could keep going on, but I hope you've gotten the impression from just these few verses. The gospel was central to the ministry of Jesus, to the ministry of the apostles. Now, I can only touch on three observations here about our mission of proclaiming the gospel this morning. First of all, we glorify God by proclaiming the gospel with verbal clarity. Uh, We need to be clear in what we're saying about the good news so that people get it, they understand. Uh, There's a rather surprising prayer request that Paul gives in Colossians. And remember, he wrote this toward the end of his ministry. So he's been preaching the gospel now for probably 25 years or more. He is in prison for the gospel. And here's what he writes to the Colossians, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Praying, it's it's a request in the context, would you be praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That's another way of referring to the gospel for which I have also been imprisoned. And then here's the surprising request, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. And and then at the end of Ephesians, written about the same time, uh, Paul asked for prayer that he would be bold in making the gospel known. You know, I wouldn't have thought that the Apostle Paul needed anybody to pray Lord, help Paul be clear, and and would you help Paul be bold? You know, the man's a little bit of a backwards guy. He doesn't speak out enough. He's in prison for the gospel. 
And yet, Paul says, help me to make it clear. Help me to be bold. And if Paul needed clarity and boldness, then how much more do we when we have opportunities to speak the gospel? Now, part of the reason we need clarity and boldness is that Satan is the master deceiver. And he is forever trying to confuse people about the central message of the gospel. As you know, in Galatia, the region in what is now northern Turkey, the Judaizers believe that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So far, so good. But then they went a little farther and tacked on what they argued was a small addition, and that is, but also you must be circumcised and... uh, Keep the Jewish ceremonial laws. Paul comes on like gangbusters in Galatians 1 and says that these men are preaching a different gospel, which is not a gospel at all, and he calls down an eternal curse on them for uh, their error. And then all through the New Testament, right up to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we see numerous times where the gospel is being undermined by false teaching. You see it in John's epistles toward the end. You see it in Second Peter. You see it in Jude. The gospel is under attack at every time by the enemy. And that infection that has plagued the church has continued all the way through church history down to our own day. In our day, there are many, many errors concerning the gospel. I'm reading uh, John MacArthur's latest book, The Gospel According to Paul, right now. And in the preface, he mentions that he never dreamed when he began his ministry uh, over 50 years ago that he would be defending the, the gospel among evangelicals. It's in the church where these errors are occurring. Um, There are many who, like the Galatian heretics, the Judaizers, um, slip in human works, human merit. Yeah, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to add good works and tip the scale eventually um, with all the merit, the good deeds you add up. That That's still with us in a major way. Um, All of the cults teach that kind of work, salvation, but also some of the major branches of Christianity uh, teach the same. Uh, There's another version, perversion, of the gospel called the prosperity gospel, and it is sweeping uh, the third world. And it's a lie. It basically says... Come to Jesus, and he'll make you healthy and wealthy. And, you know, who doesn't want health and wealth, and especially poor people? Uh, But it's just really an appeal to greed and selfishness. Come, and you'll get all these material things, and um, it's not the true gospel. There are others who sell the gospel as a form of kind of Jesus self-help, you know, you, you got a troubled marriage, you need help raising your kids, you want to succeed in your career, come to Jesus and he'll help you with all of this. And of course, that approach 
never mentions the fact you might suffer more than you are now. Uh, You might face imprisonment and martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. There's none of that in that kind of movement. It's all, again, um, superficial. Uh, There's another movement that falsely tells people that you can receive Jesus as your Savior and you can be assured of heaven even if you continue in your sins and there's no repentance. And they say that if you teach that you must repent, you're adding works to the gospel. And there's a whole, whole movement that is trying to promote that form of error. Another thing that has plagued the church again is simply legalism. And the legalists try to make some rules that aren't in the Bible, uh, or some of them are, but they add them on and say, if you aren't doing these things, then you cannot be saved. And they tack on a lot of other things. So all of that to say, we need to be really clear in presenting the gospel. And by the way, my experience, most people have the idea that good people will go to heaven if they try hard enough. So we have to dislodge that from people's thinking. And when Paul, as I think I mentioned last Sunday in Philippians 3, says, I've counted everything that was profit to me before to be garbage. I put it on the rubbish heap. What he's talking about is his good works. Because he's just outlined all of the good things that he had going for him as a Pharisee and a Jew and all of that. And he says, nope, that's all a loss that I might know Christ and the righteousness that comes through faith. So the gospel, very simply, is the message that we can be saved or rescued, delivered from God's eternal judgment. And how does that happen? Well, first, we have to all acknowledge that we have sinned. We all deserve God's judgment. And that all of our good deeds are not enough and never would be to get us into heaven. And then... The gospel is that Jesus Christ, who is eternal God in human flesh, he took on humanity, that he could die in the place of sinners on the cross and pay the penalty that we deserve. And the good news of the gospel is that God justifies, that means he declares righteous, and he gives eternal life as a free gift to every sinner who repents and believes in Jesus period. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. And you should be, you should have that basic um, sin. God provides a savior, that it is a free gift and how we receive Christ pattern in your brain with verses from the Bible that you memorize so that you can share that maybe in 60 seconds even, if that's all you have with somebody who needs to hear the good news. So the first thing is we we glorify God when we get the gospel clear and, and straight. Secondly, we glorify God by proclaiming the gospel to all people. The Great Commission, as Jesus said, extends to the whole world because Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Uh, Jesus, according to Revelation 5.9, purchased for God with his blood those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And those people will be gathered before God's throne 
and glorify him forever and ever in his presence. And that means that we as a church should be committed to the cause of world missions. John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad on World Mission. And he cites John Stott, the late British pastor, who says the highest motive for missions should not be obedience to the Great Commission. And he says the highest motive for missions should not be love for sinners. The highest motive for missions should be to glorify God, to glorify God through the gospel going forward. And so Piper adds, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's our goal, that all people would worship, glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the gospel. The third thing to note about sharing the gospel is that we glorify God by verbally proclaiming his gospel, backed up by Christ-like love for all people. In other words, our Christ-like lives have to be the foundation for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said, you'll remember in John 13, that the world would know we are his disciples by our love for one another. And Paul reminded the Thessalonians, as we saw, that he imparted to them not only the gospel, but also his own life. And he goes on and reminds them of his integrity when he was with them. The enemy has used the hypocrisy of those who proclaim to be Christian, but they aren't living the message to undermine the gospel more than perhaps anything else. You know, you'll hear people, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about you Christians, and maybe they got ripped off in business by a dishonest, quote, Christian businessman, or uh, they've had some other bad experience with Christians, or it's horrible when it comes out in the news that some prominent Christian has been living a double life. And so it's very, very important that our lives back up our testimony, not perfection, but when we do sin, that we ask forgiveness, that we're honest about it, that we are seeking God in a genuine way, and then our lives open the door for verbal witness about Christ. Now, whenever you talk about uh, love for people through the gospel, uh, the question comes up, well, what about social ministries, you know? Isn't the church called to meet the physical needs of the poor and help out the sick and so on? Um, in the book I mentioned, What is the Mission of the Church? De Young and Gilbert spend three chapters dealing with this, and I can't go into that detail, of course, let me just say this. Obviously, it would not be loving to proclaim the gospel to someone and leave him starving if he's very hungry. We have to meet physical needs as a, a, in conjunction with sharing the gospel. But at the same time, it wouldn't be loving to that person to feed them and not tell them about the eternal uh, hope of the gospel. They have to go hand in glove. And so, in other words, social ministries meeting the needs of the poor and so on can be a means to evangelism, 
but they are not evangelism. Um, I think one of the, the great flaws that I remember reading about Mother Teresa's ministry in India is she didn't share the gospel. She helped the people, the poor people, wonderful, but she didn't share the gospel. And if people are dying without the gospel, then we haven't loved them. And so we've got to tell people the good news. Yes, meet their need if they're starving or hurting or whatever the thing may be. But the best news is the free gift of the gospel. Um, DeYoung and Gilbert in that book I mentioned explain why we have to focus in the gospel. They say this, in the end, the Great Commission must be the mission of the church for two very basic reasons. There is something worse than death, and there is something better than human flourishing. See, the something worse than death is eternity in hell apart from God. The something better than uh, human flourishing in this life is, as I mentioned last Sunday, to spend eternity in the presence of God where there are pleasures forever. And so because eternity exists, because there is hell and there is heaven, we must uh, not just meet physical needs here and now but or even emotional needs, but we must tell people the good news about eternity in Jesus. But there is more. Um, well, let me mention too, by the way, if, if you'd like a couple of good books on the gospel, out on the book table, there's one called 8 to 15. Tom Mercer uh, wrote that one. He's a pastor over in Victorville. And then another one called I Will by Tom Rayner. And you might want to look those up on the book table. But there's more than just getting people in the door, so to speak, by believing the gospel. Um, the church's mission in the second place is to glorify God by making Christ-like disciples who love God and who love one another. So what I'm saying is the Great Commission is not just to make converts, but to make disciples who are obedient followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 mentions baptism, and baptism is an initial act of obedience to Christ that uh, signifies being identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, raised up to new life in him. So it pictures our old life is gone. Now there is a new life in Christ that we are to live as uh, in obedience to Jesus. And then Jesus says we are to teach uh, converts who have been baptized to observe or obey all that Jesus commanded us. Now, that's a lifelong process, isn't it? We're all in that process. And uh, it's never complete. But um, if a person says, I believe in Jesus, but they aren't interested in growing in obedience, you need to go back to square one with them and say, I'm concerned you haven't truly understood what it means to believe in Jesus. Because Christ followers want to grow in obedience to him. And yeah, we all have setbacks, we all have our shortcomings, but the direction of our lives should be, I want to be like Jesus. So it's a process of growth. Now, 
that raises the question, well, what are Jesus' commands? As I mentioned, there's 613 of them in the law. Uh, Well, thankfully, Jesus boiled them down to two for us that we read a few moments ago. Let me read it again in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Jesus said, the two greatest commands are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, And with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Let me just point out in passing, there are two commandments, there are not three. Because a lot of modern Christian psychologists try to tell you, oh, you're commanded to love yourself. No, you're not. Uh, You're commanded to deny yourself Love for self is assumed. If you can love your neighbor as much as you truly do love yourself, you have fulfilled the second commandment, and we never do that because we all love ourselves quite well. Um, But first of all, let's look at the fact that Christ-like disciples love God above all else. And as I said, this is a lifelong process, and it's never going to be perfect in this life But you begin to love the Savior the moment you realize Jesus died on the cross for all my sins. He gave that infinite sacrifice out of love for me. And so we love Him. And we love the Father who sent Him for our salvation. And as His children, we seek to please Him because He loves us as a loving Father. And so there's that relationship. Also, a growing love for God means a growing hatred for our sin. Uh, We we should despise our sin. Psalm 97.10 exhorts, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil if you love the Lord. In fact, Jesus said his own disciples must even hate their own families and even their own lives in comparison to their love for him. And so there, there has to be, again, that direction of our lives. It's not a matter of perfection. It's a matter of, is that where we're growing? Is that the direction we're going? Love for God also entails worshiping him in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said to the woman at the well. Uh, I love the definition that Anglican Archbishop William Temple gave of worship. He said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Uh, John MacArthur wrote a wonderful book called The Ultimate Priority on Worship, and he defines it this way. He said, Worship is our innermost being, responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. And then more briefly, MacArthur says, Worship is all that we are 
reacting rightly to all that he is. Now, for our worship on Sundays to be what it ought to be when we gather, uh, it's important that we all be worshiping God daily in our private walk with him. Because if we're flat there, come in on Sunday, it ain't going to happen here just by getting all of us together. But if daily we spend time with the Lord in the Word and just seeing who He is and who we are as revealed in the Word, then when we gather on Sunday, it's an overflow. And we ought to be worshiping Him, glorifying Him. So first and foremost, Christ-like disciples love God above all else. And then secondly, Christ-like disciples build up one another in love. Um, As Jesus said in John 13, our love for one another uh, shows the world we're his disciples, that we love as he loved us. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 said, you know, you can have uh, all gifts, spiritual gifts, and you can have all knowledge, and you can even have faith that moves mountains. But if you don't have love, he said, you're nothing. You're a zero. Love is essential. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. And of course, again, like love for God, this is a lifelong growth process. We all have to work at it in our relationships, in our homes, in our church, with other people. Uh, What it means is we work through relational conflicts because we will have them. We're all different. We all have misunderstandings. But we do it, as Paul says in Colossians 3, there with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, even as God in Christ forgave us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, Paul explains how the church is to exercise our God-given gifts to build up one another in love. He writes there, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Those two gifts founded the church. And some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. The evangelists helped spread the, the word. The pastors and teachers equip for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, or that word can mean ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, according uh, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So in a nutshell, that's my whole philosophy of ministry. As a pastor-teacher, My aim is to help equip you for your ministry that God has given to you, which includes 
building up the members of the body in love, in Christ. And so we are to uh, grow in love as a body. And that, as I said, means we've got to work through relational issues. We, we have to uh, always have a mindset of how can I help this person become more like Jesus? Whether it's a casual conversation at church, meeting over coffee during the week, small groups, home fellowships, Sunday school, adult Sunday school class, or wherever we're at, college group, everything is to be uh, this discipleship focus, helping us be more like followers of Christ. But it's possible as a church to be doing all of that and then be inwardly focused and to turn in on ourselves. And that's not right. Because Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And so if we're going to be Christ-like, we've got to have that outward focus always, too, on the lost. So we've looked at our vertical focus is that we glorify God by loving Him uh, and proclaiming the gospel. And then our internal focus that we Uh, become lovers of God and love one another. And then also the church's mission in the third place is to glorify God by making Christ-like disciples who, in turn, make Christ-like disciples. And so if we aren't doing that, we're not making disciples who make disciples, we're just talking to ourselves. Um, We're kind of like the doctor, maybe, like that grocery store guy who puts up a sign and says, no patients allowed. You know, it's nice to have a nice, clean doctor office, but doctors are for patients to help cure them. And uh, Jesus said he came to call sinners to repentance. And so when repentant sinners come to Christ, then they are to make more repentant sinners as the gospel goes forth through them. And it's a process of multiplication that should go on and on. In fact, the reason we're all here today is because that process is happening. Um, Here's how Paul put this process to his disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. He said, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust or entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you count? There are four generations of disciples there. Paul, and then there's Timothy, and then there's the faithful men that Timothy entrusts what Paul had taught him, uh, that message too. And then there's those whom those faithful men would teach also. And so the point is, again, if you've come to faith, But you're not making disciples who make disciples. You're short-circuiting the whole process. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, good night, I can't do that. I got a house full of little kids. Duh. There's your disciples right there. Raise up disciples among your children. You got a few years to do that, and they're out of the nest, and our homes should be... Uh, disciple-making places where we're helping disciple our kids and see them make disciples of their kids and so on down the line. 
And then as you have time, of course, with other adults that you have interaction with, whatever the situation, um, disciple-making involves getting to know people. And as you get to know them, you find out where they're at, and then you impart to them what you have learned about Christ, about walking with him, overcoming sin and temptation, um, all of the issues that come up. And it's not a one-way street. Sometimes we think, I'm going to disciple you. I'm the great discipler. You're the disciplee. No, no, no. It's two-way. It's interesting. When Paul was hoping to go to Rome, he, he wrote and he said, I want to come so I can impart some spiritual gift to you so that they would be established in their faith. And then he caught himself. And he says in Romans 1.12, uh, that is, he's kind of correcting himself here, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So here's this veteran apostle writing to these new believers in Rome, relatively new, and he's saying, yeah, when I come, I hope to help you. And then he quickly corrects himself and says, but you're going to help me too. It's always two-way, where we help each other grow in Christ. Another example of somebody getting off mission, I read about a British bus company that was getting complaints that their drivers were speeding past bus stops where there were up to 30 passengers waiting to board the bus, and they didn't stop. And the company defended its drivers and said, it's impossible for the drivers to keep their timetable if they have to stop for passengers. <laughs> and they also commented, get rid of the people and the system runs just fine. Well, I've thought that about the church, you know. Just get rid of the people and system works just fine. The problem is, of course, uh, the church is people, isn't it? And uh, we don't want to lose sight of our purpose. It's not to bar the doors and keep the people out so we have a nice, tidy operation. Uh, the goal, the glory, the purpose of the church is to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel and then by making Christ-like disciples who make Christ-like disciples. If we're focused on anything else, we're drifting. We've got to get back to our purpose. Let me pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word that gives us instruction. Thank you for calling us to such a, an eternal, eternally significant purpose of calling people out of darkness and into light, that they will be with us forever in heaven because we told them the good news about Jesus, that we can devote ourselves to the great cause of loving you, loving one another, and loving the lost. I pray that this church would be a church that impacts our city by letting people know about Jesus and that we would impact people worldwide through our commitment to world mission. I would ask, Father, if any are here who have never put their trust in Christ alone, 
that they would abandon all efforts at good works to get them into heaven and realize that Jesus provides the way that he gave himself as the sacrifice needed to pay for their sin, that they would put their trust in Jesus even this very day. We'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.